Okay, there, saints. Exodus chapter 21 this evening. We'll be beginning in verse 12 and cover the first 11 verses last week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we are, as we come before you, we're in awe, truly in awe, realizing that, Lord, Every one of us have fallen short of your requirements. The wages of sin is death. And yet you chose, Lord, to give us life. You make a distinction in your word about those who would slay with premeditation and those who would slay involuntarily without meaning it. And your law declares a justice. Your law declares a truth. And Father, we understand that your son Jesus Christ went to the cross for us. So when they ask, you know, who put Jesus on the cross? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? It was, it was my sin, Lord. I know that. It was our sin. It's what drove you there. You, you willfully went there so that we could have this right relationship. As we cover this passage today, Lord, there's a, a deeper meaning always as it points to you, Jesus. But there's a word here for us. So knit us to your purposes. Give us ears to hear what your spirit will speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. All the saints said, Amen. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 21, verse 12. Now, in the first 11 verses, as we looked last week, they were laws concerning liberty. We looked at the slaves as, as the, the, the Lord had really wanted Moses to begin his teaching of how society should be. He began at what would be considered the lowest you know, people within society, or as people would look at it, God would esteem them highly, and he would go to them first, and he would make first the mention of the slaves. And so we looked at the first, you know, six verses of the male slaves, and then as, as you know, 7 through 11 with the female slaves. And now when we hit verse 12, he shifts context. Just um, as, as we begin to see here, it says in verse 12 of Exodus 21, he who strikes a man so that he dies, shall surely be put to death. So we're looking at this portion of scripture, and what we're seeing is basically kind of a broadening of that passage from Exodus 20, verse 13, where it says, you shall not murder. And so he begins to clarify a little bit of this. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Keep in mind, this isn't new. If you want to understand where this originates, it originates all the way back in the book of Genesis. If you're familiar with that passage, one verse I want to read to you so that you can at least become aware of it, but it's where God begins to allow the society to deal a corporate punishment for those who would shed blood. It begins this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. 
for the image of God he made man. So if you take the life of a man, then by man, God says, and this is the foundation, that your blood shall also be shed. So there's a point where God is beginning to institute for society that if someone takes the life of another, that society can pronounce a judgment and society can bring about a corporal punishment. It's brought about further in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 13, if you're familiar with this um, passage, I'm going to start reading in verse 1 to 4, so you can see that, yes, not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament speaks these truths. What Paul says to the church of Rome in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers, verse 3, are not a terror to do good works. In other words, they're not there to punish good works. That's not why God instituted them, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, he says, be afraid in verse 4, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So God has designed and set up civil authorities to protect its people and to mete out punishment for that. And this is here what God is beginning to institute so that when it comes to us judging one another, when it comes to judges judging a situation, that they would understand God's word and they would understand how to judge it. And so as we look to this in verse 12, very simply, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. In other words, you kill someone, then society has that directive to God to take the evil out of its society, to remove it out, and to cleanse it. In other words, to put a fear to people to say, wow, if I would take a man's life, I could put my life in jeopardy, so I don't want to do that. And so he exacts this perfect punishment. In other words, you know that passage, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In other words, that you're going to mete out the punishment that fits the crime. And of course, if you shed man's blood, by man God had instituted in, in you know, um, Genesis 9-6 that, that man should shed his blood. Now as we look to this, we see there's a, an exemption in verse 13. He said, however, if he did not lie in wait. So here's a man that wasn't doing a premeditative murder, but a situation happened and a man does die. So he says in verse 13, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. So this is where, if something happens where I was throwing rocks out of my field and throwing them onto a rock pile, 
And I have a neighbor that was watching me and he was hiding behind the rocks and I didn't see him. I wasn't angry at him. I don't care what he's doing. But I chucked a rock and the rock hit him in the head. Well, yeah, it was through my you know, hands that he died, but I didn't see him there. I wasn't angry with him. There wasn't anything premeditated. So if there is this place where someone does die and you didn't intend for them to die, it wasn't premeditated, then what God says is that I will appoint a place where he may flee. These are known as the cities of refuge. It's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 35. And if you would, turn to the book of Numbers, turn to chapter 35. And what I want to do is I want to start reading in verse 9. I'm going to just bring you through this portion of what the cities of refuge are. Eventually, when we get to this portion, we'll look at it in depth. But for now, I kind of want to just read it through so you have a general idea. I'll stop and focus on a couple of areas to expound on it. But it begins this in Numbers chapter 35, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. So he goes and he says, I want to appoint these cities. They're going to be cities of refuge. That if you've killed a man accidentally, not intentionally, that you could go to the city and at least your life would be spared because it was an unintentional killing. And it says this in verse 12, they shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And that the cities which you give shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. These six cities will be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, for the sojourner among them, and anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. So now we understand the logistics of these cities. There are three cities that are going to be on the western side of the Jordan. There's going to be three cities that will be on the eastern side of the Jordan. This is important because Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are, are on the you know, eastern side of the Jordan. The rest will cross over. And so he wants a city of refuge, three on the eastern side, three on the western side. The way these cities are positioned is this. You have one in the southern, one in the middle, one in the northern, on both sides of the Jordan. And that's important because what happens is if I slayed someone accidentally, each city of refuge would be one day's journey. I could get to that city from anywhere in Israel within one day. And the important thing about that is this. By the time someone found out, oh my goodness, you know, you killed my cousin Grisha, I would already be able to be in that city safe from the avenger of the family who says, wow, you took Grisha's life, I'm going to take yours. And so the city's able to watch over me, the city's able to hear the case, the city's able to make a judgment upon it. And so it begins this in verse 16 of Numbers 35. But if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. So you, you, you hit someone intentionally, that's murder. If he strikes him with a stone in the hand, 
by which he could die. And he does die. He's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die. And he does die. He's a murderer and the murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets them, he shall put him to death. So if you are someone who's guilty of murder, then that near of kin is able to exact a judgment for the dead person, for his family member. He said, you killed my family member. So in his stead, because you can't have an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he can't take your life. So I will do it in his stead because you're a murderer. And it begins this. Now in verse 20, if he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait or hurls something at him so that he dies. So if I'm angry at him and I shove him, if I throw something at him and, and it makes this statement that basically or an enmity, verse 21, strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Now verse 22. However, you see it's the other side of the coin. If he pushes him suddenly without enmity or throws anything at him without lying in wait. So you're, you're just not premeditated. It just so happens that you're scuffling and you, you, know, you, you, you shove him. Um, you're, you're having a scuffle, he throws something at you, you throw something at him, but it's, it's not a premeditation. And so in verse 23, or he uses a stone by which a man could be throwing it at him without seeing him, that's Grisha hiding in the rock pile. And then we see here that he dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm. Then verse 24, the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the assembly, the judges get together in the town, the elders get together at the gate, they judge the situation. Now verse 25, so the congregation shall, or that's the assembly, shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood and the congregation shall return to the, him to the city of refuge where he had fled and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So at this point, they take him out. They have this, as the avenger of the blood comes and says, hey, bring out Lowell. He killed my cousin Grisha. They take us out to a neutral spot. They still protect me. The, 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 the situation is heard. He says what he knows. I say what I know. The congregation then judges. And as the congregation judges, if they find me guilty, they turn me over to the avenger of blood. If they find me innocent, get back in the city. This is where you are, but this is where you have to stay. We're going to find out in just a moment that if I leave that place of refuge, if I leave that city of refuge and the avenger of blood then kills me, that he's not considered guilty of murder. See, right now, if I'm in the city, he does it. He's not guilty of murder. He shouldn't be doing that. But we see this, verse 26, if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, 
the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So once the high priest dies and the new high priest comes, at that point, then, then that whole case has been nullified. It's over. It's no longer there. And the avenger blood cannot come at you because then, of course, he would be considered guilty of murder. But you could go back to the place where you grew up. You go back into the sense to your old life. And, and at the same time, you're, you're pardoned from the crime because of the death of the high priest. Now, all this is really interesting when we consider that Jesus, you know, has said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That through my sin, through your sin, Jesus died on the cross. We're the one that caused his death. And but we did not mean to. So what does it mean? Well, we didn't premeditate kill him, but in a sense we did. So we are these manslayers that have killed him accidentally. We didn't intend to do that. And Jesus makes that confession. They did not know what they did. So because of that, we as Christians, we can, because of the blood of Christ, we can go into our city of refuge. Guess what that is? It's our Jesus Christ. And we remain in him. We stay in him until the death of the high priest. And as soon as the death of the high priest, well, then we're, we're, we're free to go back into our, our place. Amazingly, we, we look to two aspects. One, when Jesus died on the cross, at that point, if he becomes the high priest, then he'll never die. So we always remain in our city of refuge. We remain in Christ. However, there are some people who do believe that our high priest did die, and so we're simply free. Whoever is he, the sun sets free, you're free indeed. And, and we, can, we can love God and serve God. So there's two ways of looking at it. I like the first better for my life. I want to just stay in Jesus. That's what I want to do. I don't want to leave him. I don't want to go outside of him. But it's important to recognize that this is what the, the whole issue of this avenger in this area of the cities of refuge and it says this in verse 29, And these things shall be a statute of the judgment throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against the person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So in other words, if... I killed someone, I say, listen, let me give you, you know, 800 shekels of silver. Sorry, you can't buy your way out of it. Your life is forfeit. And so he says here, verse 31, moreover, you shall not take a ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. So if I killed someone accidentally and I say, listen, can I pay you off so that I can leave this and go back to my home? You can't do that either. You must remain in that city of refuge. And now verse 33, you shall not pollute the land where you are for the blood defiles the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. And this is where it becomes key in verse 33 and 34. He talks about that when someone sheds blood, that 
if I did that with a premeditation, I've now defiled that land. And nothing can cleanse that land except my blood. That's it. That's the only thing that can cleanse the land. So God talks about the defilement of the land, not the defilement of the hearts of the people, but simply the land. And it's his land. And there in Israel, when, when someone is there and blood is shed, he wants to make sure that that cleansing, the only cleansing that can be done, and you can't buy your way out of it, the land has to be made new. And it has to be made new through the blood of the person who killed that first guy. So we begin to see now back in our text where verse 13 opens up that truth where however if he did not lie in wait but God delivered him into his hand then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. Verse 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery you shall take him from my altar that he may die. This passage is more intriguing than you may think. When you look to scripture and you begin to see what the altar was and those who went to the altar said, would you please preserve my life? There are commentators who make this declaration that in the religions that were around in society, not God's, not Christianity, not, you know, uh, the, the Hebrew Judaism, but in, in other religions, if you killed someone and you went to your temple of your God, you could be spared as long as you were there in the temple of your God. It was like a city of refuge. But God does something interesting. He says, if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him, and he comes to the altar and says, let this altar protect me. I, wanna, I don't want you to kill me by God's altar. God says simply, um, listen, take it from my altar. My altar is not going to protect someone who's premeditated by killing someone else. Why is this passage unique and interesting there is and i'm going to weave you through events that took place in the life of a man by the name of joab he was the commander of the army of david and and what i want to do is this i want you to begin to look at second samuel and in second samuel i want to look at verse um chapter 2 initially, and what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to look at a man by the name of Abner. In 2 Samuel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 through 10, we see here that this man Abner, it says, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Zezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and over all Israel. And so Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. So we see that here, when Saul dies, rather than David becoming the king, this man Abner goes and takes one of Saul's sons by the name of Ishbosheth. And he raises him up to be a king. Well, in a sense, what happens is this man, Abner, 
is, is kind of using him as this puppet. And so he's the one who's kind of saying, you know, Ishbosheth, you're going to be the king, you're going to do this, but at the same time, remember, I'm the one who installed you here. And so it opens up this, and I want to share with you now in 2 Samuel um, chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, because something happens between Abner and Ishbosheth. So in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 6, Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So all of a sudden, Abner now is, is looking to say, I'm going to seek to get a better hold onto this house of Saul, although I'm setting up his son Ishbosheth as the king. Now, verse 7, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aah. And so Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? So in a sense, he's taking the place of authority, saying, I can go into his concubine. And Abner, verse 8, becomes very angry at the words of Ishbosheth by saying, who are you? You don't have authority. He said, am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? And so at that point, Abner now chooses to say, you know what? I'm going to have nothing to do with you. I'm going to go and I'm going to give myself over to David I'm going to be alongside of David, and I'm going to bring all of Israel. I'm going to unite them to David. And so David, what he does is he goes and he then makes a treaty with Abner. And as he makes this treaty with Abner, all of a sudden what he does is he says, listen, I'm going to have you come, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to you know, basically say, yeah, there's going to be peace between you and there's going to be peace between me. And so what David does is he comes and sets up where he says, okay, yeah, you can be all right. And then what happens is this. Joab comes back to the scene. And what happens is this. Well, let me, let me actually just focus on, on verse 20 and 21 here of, of 2 Samuel 3, where it says, so Abner and his 20 men with him came to meet David at Hebron. David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and I will gather all Israel to my Lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. There's a treaty made. And all of a sudden, Joab now comes to the king, comes to David in verse 24 of 2 Samuel 3. And he says this, he said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you to know you're going out and you're coming in to know all that you are doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sirach. But David did not know it. Verse 27, now when Abner had returned to Hebron, 
Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. So he said, come on, let's have a conversation. And there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashiel, his brother. At this point, we see that Joab goes and he slays Abner. In time, what we're going to see is this. In 2 Samuel, I want to share with you in chapter 18. It opens up this, 2 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to start reading in verses 9 and 10. And then I'm going to jump over to verse 12 and then 14 and 15. But it begins this. You know how David's son Absalom seeks to take over the kingdom. And, of course, David had said, I don't want anyone touching Absalom. He's my son. Allow him to live. But what happened is in 2 Samuel 18, then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great tavern tree. And his head caught in the tavern so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which, mule which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a tree. And so we see here, he says, all right, look at verse 12. But the man said to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels, he says, why didn't you kill him? He said, though I would receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Atai, saying, beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Well, at this point in verse 14, Joab said, I cannot linger with you. He took three spears in his hand and he thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the tavern tree. And ten young men who bore Jer Joab's army surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So we see that one, Joab kills Abner. Two, Joab kills Absalom. And then a third one, he's going to kill this man named Amasa. Now Amasa, for those of you that, that understand, when Absalom had made a treaty, uh, when Absalom wanted to flee from David and take over David and, and conquer David and take over the, the kingdom for himself, it begins this in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 25. One verse that said this, Absalom made Amasa captain of, his, of the army instead of Joab. And Amasa was the son of the man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone to Abigail. And so as Absalom comes now, that he you know, sets up this man Amasa as the captain of his army, as the commander. And then what happens is this. Eventually, David is going to restore Amasa. And to the point of, there in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Look at verse 13, if you will, as we go through these events. David goes and he, he speaks to Amasa. He says, say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not the commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. So he says, listen, Absalom, my son is dead, but you know, Amasa, I'm going to bring you 
And because Joab had killed my son, you're going to be the commander of my army, not Joab anymore. But we're going to find out that they're in chapter 20 of 2 Samuel. If you scroll all the way down to um, verse 8, it begins this. That when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. So Amasa comes as they're about to go and pursue a group of people. And so it says Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor, and on it was the belt with the sword fashioned in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. So he's walking his, his sword falls out. Then Joab said to Amasa, verse 9, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard and by the right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again, thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Berechiah. And meanwhile, Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever's for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. And then he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. And when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Berechai. So they can go and pursue that group of people. Now, here's where the real kick comes in. Turning your Bibles to 1 Kings. Solomon comes on the throne. And remember what had happened there with Solomon. Prior to Solomon coming to the throne, what had happened was that Adonijah, Solomon's brother, had pronounced himself the king. He said, I'm the king, come follow me. And Joab had said, you know what, I'm going to follow Adonijah. I'm not going to follow Solomon. What happened was this. There comes a point here in 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. It says this, the news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. You understand exactly what God said. The altar's not going to save you. And so we see here that he says, no, I'm going to go to the altar. I'm going to grab onto the, you cannot kill me here at the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. And there he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said, him, thus says the king, come out. He said, no, but I will die here. Benaiah brought back the words of the king, saying, thus says Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said to him, do as he said, and strike him down and bury him, that he may that we, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. Verse 32, for the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and he killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, 
the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants and upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. And so we begin to see here that there's this pattern. If you come to the temple, will God protect you? No. The answer is no. If you are committing a murder intentionally, you should die. Isn't it amazing how God should have judged every one of us? And you can run to God, run to the church, and run to this, and there, there is no redemption. However, Jesus said, I'm going to be your kinsman redeemer. It'll be my blood that's shed for you. So incredibly that we see this incredible work of the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we see this, verse 14, back in our text of Exodus 21, and yeah, we're only three verses in, but we'll finish. And so we see that if a man acts with premeditation against his brother to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. The best thing is remove him from the altar so that there isn't bloodshed there. And that's God's desire. And now we see this, verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, what happens is this. So often in the English language, we don't understand the fullness of the context. We don't understand the fullness. So a lot of people think, well, if you slap your mother or you slap your father, that you're going to die. I want you to understand, he says, he who strikes his father or his mother. If you bump up to verse 12, remember the first statement we read. He who strikes a man so that he dies. So it's, it's not just a slap. It's literally you're, you're, you're trying to kill them. You try to kill your parents and say, well, they're my parents. It doesn't make a difference to your parents. You still, because you sought to strike them, you shall be put to death. So the, the context of, of what we're seeing here in verse 15 fits more with Exodus 21.12 than 20.12. So it's not like, well, they didn't honor. No, no, it means you're trying to kill them. You're put to death. And then in verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So at this point, we see that you're not taking his life and killing it, but you're taking his life. You understand? You kidnapped him. It's no longer his life, but now you're taking it. And so if you kidnap a man, you sell him, and or if he's found in his hand, you kidnap him and you keep him. By you taking his life, the freedom of him living his life away, you're guilty of death. You're also put to death. So think about how God is so sure of you're not allowing this person to live his life by either killing them or you're not allowing this person to live your life by kidnapping them and keeping them. Either way, you're guilty of destroying that life. You're now put to death. And now he says in verse 17, 
goes back to the parents and the children. He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. The curse is not saying just curse you, but it's a sense you're threatening to kill them. If you get to the point where you're threatening to kill them in that curse, then at that point you're also put to death. So we begin to see here where, where God is saying you have to understand that if you have a child that is so unruly to the first set of authority that God puts in his life, that child is going to be unruly to the next set of authority that God puts in his life. If he doesn't respect this one, he won't respect the other one. So let's deal with the situation early on than letting it spread and continue on into society. So if the man curses his father or his mother, and the, the, the sense means it's a death curse or a death threat upon him, he shall surely be put to death. If men, verse 18, contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist, and he does not die, but is confined to his bed... So at this point, if I'm grappling with someone and I get the upper hand and I incapacitate them. And so if, if, I, if I get this to the point where, you know, I, I grab a stick or I grab a rock and I smack the guy. And all we are, it's a shoving match. But I, I escalate it to a point where I grab a weapon and I smack the guy. And now he goes down and, and he doesn't die. But, but it says, but he's confined to his bed. He's injured. Either I, I hurt his head or I broke his arm. I did something. It says this, if he rises again and walks outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. In other words, I haven't committed murder. I've injured him. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and, pro, and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. So if I escalate uh, um, bad blood and a scuffle to the point where I injure a man, and because I've injured him, I'm the initiator of the injury, then what happens is I need to make sure that I pay for his lost wages, I pay for him to be healed, and, and I do this, and I'm required to do this by God. So it's it's... I'm giving workman's comp. I'm paying for his doctor. In other words, it's like that insurance. We have that same thing. If I'm guilty of it, I need to take care of him. And now it says this in verse 20. If a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Now, to be honest with you, out of all the verses that we are going to read here this evening, this is the hardest one for me. To be honest with you, it is the hardest one. I do want to share you a couple of truths that will help you as I was praying through this and God used his word and, and this passage itself, just what it says, to help my heart as well. So if you're in that same, or that, that same category as me, it declares this, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand. In other words, the, the beating is so severe that the slave itself succumbs to death. Then it says this, that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. 
Now, that's what was the kick for me. What is the punishment? Now, understand, I want to take you to two things. The first is this, the first part of the verse. If he beats his male or female servant with a rod, he shall surely be punished. What? He shall be beaten with a rod. Whatever he beats his servant with, that they succumb to death, that same punishment that he meted out to his servant now gets meted out to him. If he whips them so they die, then he gets whipped. If they whipped 40 times, he gets whipped 40 times. If he beat them with a rod 40 times, he gets beaten with a rod 40 times. You understand the punishment isn't, oh, it's just a slap on the wrist. One, you've lost your slave and you get punished to the point that it's an eye for an eye. The, the punishment is meted out to you. And if you die through that punishment and you die too, then that's a just punishment for what you've done. If you live through it, that's the grace of God. Now you've got to go through that beating. You've got to go through exactly what you did to your servant. And so in that sense, that should help someone say, wow, if I am as cruel to my, my, my servants and they die through that, then what I need to do is, is, is I'm going to get punished in the same way. There's one other passage and in the Talmud, directs it to here. And I find it incredible. I find it beautiful because in that passage that we saw was foundational there in Genesis 9, 6, if a person takes a life of a person, his life shall be taken. Well, there's a passage in Leviticus chapter 24. I want to read it to you. And it declares this in verse 21 and verse 22. Leviticus 24, verse 21 and 22, it says, Whoever kills an animal shall restore it. In other words, you kill an animal, you have to restore the animal. Like if I killed my neighbor's sheep, I got to restore his sheep. But whoever kills a man shall be put to death. So you understand that one of the Talmud said that he should be punished. And they actually said the punishment of killing your servant is death. And I thought that fits right in line with the foundation that God said. So just when it says that passage, he shall be punished, don't think he's getting off easy. You understand that he's getting punished to the exacting amount that that punishment should be meted out. If he beat his slave with a rod 40 times, he'll be beaten 40 times. And so it says here again in Leviticus 24, verse 21, whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and one for your own country, for I am the Lord your God. So the, the, the law is for everyone who is there. There are no exceptions. Now, there is one kind of thing that does deal with a little bit of an exception, and that is this. In Leviticus chapter 25, we begin to see there's a couple of verses beginning in verse 46 or 44. And I'm going to read down to verse 46. Leviticus 25 verse 44. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. So if you go to someone who's not Hebrew, you go to another nation you can take a slave from there, and they will become your slaves. 
Moreover, verse 45, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. So if you do have someone who's not an Israelite and you have someone from another country, they become, in a sense, property. Now, verse 46, and you may take them as your inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a position, as a possession, but they shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. So someone who's a foreigner, you can deal with them. They become a possession like you become their possession if, if you belong to a foreigner. But if you're a brother, if you're both Israelites, you're different. Don't rule over them with rigor. Make them more as simply a hired servant. So we begin to see here within this passage that in verse 20, if you struggled with it like I've struggled with it, when you just read it, you dig deeper into it. And, and there's a real honest truth, a real honest justice that comes with that. So hopefully you don't have to struggle with that anymore. And now in verse 21, notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his property. So what happens is if he, um, if he doesn't die, when he's up and he's walking around, then eventually he dies. And so he's alive for more than a, a time. Then he won't be beaten with the rods. He won't be beaten in that sense because, you know, at that point, the man had a chance to recover and they believed it was God's will to say, I'm going to take him out of the hand of this master that was wicked. So God is the one who takes that slave. So we see here, if he remains alive, he's not punished to the degree that he would be if the man died. Now verse 22, if men fight, two men are grappling. And they heard a woman with a child, so she gives birth prematurely. Yet no harm follows. He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So if we see here the two men are grappling, and you run into a woman who's with child, and because of the, the injury that she sustains through your guys' um, foolishness, at that point, the woman's husband can impose upon them, goes to the judge, and the judge will determine what is owed for you know, causing this woman to have breathe, the, the birth prematurely, and then you have to pay that. But it says this in verse 23, but if any harm follows, then you shall give a life for a life. So if that child dies because of what you did, then you need to give your life for that child, even if that child was there in the womb. And so we see verse 24, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, and a foot for a foot. Burn for a burn, wound for a wound, stripe for a stripe. The same thing that the Lord taught us in Matthew 5, you know, verse 38. Now keep in mind that as we look to this, when you see an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, it's not meant as an obligation that if someone poked your eye out, you have to poke their eye out. If someone burned you and the, the burn was two inches by two inches, you have to burn them and the, the burn is two inches. You don't have to have an exact meeting out. So it doesn't mean it's an obligation. But what the Lord is saying is this. A lot of time that when, when I'm injured, 
and you take my eye, I want to take two of yours. So I want to not only take your eye, I don't want justice, but I want justice plus a little bit extra. I want, I want that icing on the cake. And what God is saying, be careful because in your retaliation, you can't up the ante. In other words, if you lost one eye, the most you can do is to take an eye, no more, no less. So, you know, if you want to go less, you can, but, but you, you cannot go more than that. And I think, keep in mind that what God is teaching in retaliation is that it has to be justice. You can't exceed over that just because of the emotional state that you're in. And that's what here, this retaliational passion, you know, begins to open up. And it's only an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, strike for a strike. Now, if any man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of the male and female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Now at this point, if there's an abuse that comes, an injury comes, and you are abusive to your slave, then that slave is able to go free. And so, you know, if, if I was a slave and there was a master who would smack us around, what I would do is I would have my fellow slave pull one of my teeth out, and I would just keep it in my mouth, and when I'm around, he goes, tap, and I spit it out. See you around, buddy. You know, I would <laughs> just, just do that before you lose an eye. You know, that's just me. But it, it's, it's where there's abuse comes to a slave. He says, listen, if, if you're abusing to that point where you're causing that injury, that slave is allowed to go free. Now, just in case you think, is it only an eye? Is it only a tooth? It's the principle that's stated to the point of abuse. If you bring that to the point of abuse, at that point, they're free to go. Now, we take a look at the next one where it doesn't go to what I have done personally, but it still deals with the life, the taking of a life. Remember, we had the laws concerning liberty of the slave, and now these are the laws concerning life. It isn't me who takes a life, but I have an ox, and the ox takes a life. So what happens is this. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. So in other words, if my ox kills a person, kills that guy Grisha, then my ox is put to death. I don't get to keep him. I don't get to do anything. He just, he's put to death. And it's not like, you got to get some burgers, got to get some steaks out of the thing. No, no, he, he took a life. That ox is completely forfeit. And so that ox's blood is going to purify the lamb. So we see here, he shall not be eaten, but the owner, me, I'm acquitted. However, verse 29, if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, I knew the ox was a problem ox, and I didn't deal with it. And, and he's, he's gored other people. And now the ox actually gored someone where he dies. So verse 29, but if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to its owner, and he's not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned 
and the owner also shall be put to death. So if I knew this ox was dangerous and I didn't confine it and the ox has been known to stab other people and that they were wounded but they never died, but now someone died. Well, I knew this ox was a problem. I should, have, I should have killed this ox and made burgers long ago because it was, it was a danger to society. But because I didn't and this ox killed someone, the responsibility is mine. Not like it was the first time the ox ever did something. I've known it had a tendency to do this. So the ox is stoned. I'm put to death. I'm accountable for the behavior because I didn't deal with it sooner. Now verse 30. If there is imposed on him a son of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. So what can happen is this. If an ox, my ox, that I know has a tendency to kill, you know, to, to poke people, if he actually kills someone, at that point, my life can be redeemed. So if my ox kills Grisha and my ox is stoned, but the family says, listen, your ox is the one that did it. You were a fool because you didn't put your ox to death. And now he is stoned. He is put to death. But we're going to ask for you 1,000 shekels of silver for Grisha's life. I can pay that and I can be redeemed. If my animal does it, if I kill it, there's no redemption at all. But if my animal does it, I can have my life redeemed. And if they say, listen, I want you to die because, you know, it was your option, I'm dead. So, so I don't get to choose what I want. But if the family says, listen, you can be spared if you pay this amount for, you know, Grisha, then I can do that. So verse 30 is this unique exception to the ox where if there is imposed on him a son of money then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter according to this judgment it shall be done to him if the ox gores a male or female servant he shall give their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned and now we see here that it's not a family member but it's a servant, it's, it's part of what he was considered his property. You have to pay him for his property. The ox is still stoned because it took a life, but you as a person, you won't be put to death if it's a servant. If it's a son or a daughter, a family member, then yes, then you are, or you can be ransomed. But for a slave, the ransom is only 30 shekels of silver. And now we see here if my oxen takes the life of another oxen. In other words, the death of property. In verse 33, if a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it. So we see that now through my actions, a death occurs of someone else's property. I dug a pit and, and I didn't cover it and I didn't put planks over it and an ox or a donkey falls into it. The owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. So if I dug a hole, and all of a sudden your donkey falls into my hole, then what happens is I buy the donkey, but the donkey's mine. If I want to have donkey burger, I can have donkey burger. You know, that, that's, it's up to me to, to say this is what I want. Now, it's an unclean animal. I wouldn't recommend it. 
but we can see it's mine, I can do it. If your oxen falls into it, I buy the oxen. I can make burgers, I can make steaks, I can do that, it's mine, I, but I will pay you for the oxen. Now it says this, if one man's ox hurts another, now if it's my ox hurts Grisha's ox, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead they shall also divide. So what happens is, I have a live ox, Grisha has a live ox, my ox kills his ox, then what we do is this, we sell my ox, we divide the money, and then we take the dead ox, which was his, and we divide that also. So in other words, perfect equality. None of us are any more, none of us are any less. The, the two oxen had the scuffle, his dies, mine lives, mine is sold, his is cut, and so there's a perfect equality. Now, verse 36, or if it was known the ox tended to thrust. Now, I have that ox that's been known to do this, and he now kills Grisha's ox. Then, its owner has not kept it confined. He shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So what happens is now I give Grisha the live ox, and I just take the dead one. So, so he can deal with this ox now, if he can either break it from its troubles or he can sell it, he can do what he wants, but I just get the dead one. So if this ox is mauled and I get, you know, it's torn up, I gotta still take it. And I don't get this equality that comes from it, he gets the better ox, he gets the better price, I get the dead ox. And so we begin to see here, um, Wait, backed it up. I, I actually missed that. It said, he shall pay for the ox and the dead animal shall be his own. There is another point where because of the language, there's an aspect where I pay for the ox and you still keep your dead one because I was so negligent on this. Now the writing of the, the language is a little obscure. And so commentators take both sides of that. I lean towards the second. It is what I do. So, so I lean towards where if I had an ox that was misbehaving, then what happens is, is he gets my ox and he gets his ox because I'm just negligent in it. I'm the one that caused the entire situation through not dealing with it initially. But there are also commentators who say, nope, there are, you know, you get to, he gets the good ox, you get the dead one. So, um, the language isn't super clear on this one, but I lean towards the one. You can lean to whichever one you want and we can talk about it. And, and to me, I think the, the, the justice is served you know, best if, if because I know I lose everything. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we are so in awe of who you are. That you're concerned about every aspect of the life of society. But above all, you're concerned about responsibility. Truly taking responsibility. And Father, as we stand before you, we honestly can say that we should be cast away. We should be slain. We should have your judgment. And yet, Lord, that's just law. That, that's truth. And yet, and it's justice, but yet there's love. There's love. Where sin abounds, love abounds even more. And you've, you've made a way, Lord, 
that we who have failed so miserably in, in just responsibility towards you, responsibility towards our fellow man, fellow man, Father, you just made it so that we have grace with you. Thank you, Lord, that you are concerned about society and how it operates and what you want more than anything is just fairness, justice. Eyes for eyes, tooth for tooth. Don't, don't, don't go over and abound. And so we're grateful, Lord, for what you do. We're grateful for how you want your society to be. And it's about taking responsibility. So help us, Lord, to grow in these things. Help us to understand and Father, continue to, to mull over and chew over these things that, that you stated, Lord, in your word. As we're looking to what happens when a life is taken, whether it's the life of an animal, the life of a, a child, the life of, of, a, of, a, um, of a friend, the life of an enemy, Lord. You're concerned about all life. That's who you are. Help us to have your heart, Lord, to be concerned concerned with life. We ask this in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.